Welcome to the Disability Sport Info Show, the podcast that explores academic knowledge about disability sport. My name is Dr. Chris Brown, and I'm an academic with an expertise in disability sport. Each episode, I focus on a specific topic of disability sport and speak to academic experts to understand the area in more depth. So join me and listen to the Disability Sport Info Show who get an expert view on disability sport. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Ian Britton to discuss how theory can be used to help us understand disabled people's sport participation and physical activity. To begin our conversation, I'd like to focus on the main theories that have been used to help explain grassroots sport participation for disabled people. Well, there's actually quite a lot of different theories, there's, particularly over the last five years or so, there seems to have been a, a growth in theories as people build on previous theories. But I'll just stick with the, I guess, the three main ones that you know I've used over my time. I mean, the first one, I guess the one it all started with is the medical model of disability, which is basically based in pathology or, you know, the human body. And it basically sort of states that issues faced by disabled people are due to their impairments and therefore they're a problem of the person with the disability. And an impairment is something that needs to be cured by some kind of medical intervention. It's based on the idea of normative values, whereby there's a perfect species typical model against which we're all measured. And the greater your difference from that species typical model, the more likely you are to be discriminated against. So that was a sort of the original model, if you like. And and as a a kind of reaction to that, particularly from uh, disability activists, mainly in the UK in the 1970s, they came up with what they called the social model of disability. And the aim of that was to highlight that the issues faced by disabled people were more often due to the way the built environment was constructed and also non-disabled attitudes towards them. So I guess what they're trying to say is you can you can have an impairment and it not disable you. Disability is something that is projected onto you by the environment and non-disabled people's attitudes and the way they treat you. Being academics, obviously, we start to pick holes in every new theory that comes out. And one of the the critiques of the social model of disability was it neglected the embodied experience of the individual with an impairment. And so that led to what's called the psychosocial model of disability. And that's a combination of the medical model and the social model, highlighting that some impairments do lead to disabling conditions. So things like chronic pain, you know, that's not due to the built environment. It's not due to people's attitudes. It is something that's embodied within the individual and it can severely impact the way they interact with the rest of society. That's the the sort of three main ones that I've used over, you know, the last 20 years or so. So those theories help us to understand how disability has been understood and perceived And this has changed over the years, as you've just outlined. So what are the benefits then to using theory to help us understand sport participation? First and foremost, they provide a consistent analytical lens with which to interrogate data. They also help us recognise, understand, maybe explain new situations that we haven't come Mm. across before. They help us identify gaps in current knowledge And I guess also they allow us for a better comparison of different researchers' work. So, you know, I may work from 
let's say, a social model perspective. Somebody else uses a different theory. And as long as we understand both theories, we can actually compare the findings from both. And maybe that leads to a new theory where we combine those two theories to give us an even better understanding of the situation. Okay, so it enables us to look at a situation or issue from multiple viewpoints to give us that framework from which we can then operate within. If you've got a framework, it allows you to be consistent across all of the data that you interrogate because you're applying the same lens, Yes, you know, rather than, you know, just sort of almost making it up as you go along sort of yes. uh, affair. And also it helps to give the explanation aspect as well, because you can start connecting the dots and finding patterns. Okay, so we understand how theory can be the basis for our understanding of social issues. In recent years, ableism has been a concept and theory that has been explored in increasing detail. And I know you published a paper with colleagues on this topic in the last few years. But what is ableism? And how can it help us understand disabled people's sport participation and physical activity? I think you have to you have to be aware that ableism goes beyond disability for a start. It's still based it's still very much based in this whole idea of normative values. But in a, in a general sense, it's a way to explain discrimination based on a variety of identity characteristics. So it therefore allows for sort of intersectional research. So I could, as an example, maybe using ableism, explain why a white, straight, non-disabled male may suffer less discrimination within society than a black female lesbian disabled individual i mean those closest to accepted norms it actually allows them to hold power over those who diverge from those norms so you know it's it's used to sort of exclude those that don't fit the norms but include those that do closely associate with a certain set of accepted norms within a particular cultural or, or society and that group is usually the one that is most economically and politically powerful. Um, and then they can therefore use that uh, economic and political power to exclude those and keep, keep hold of certain things that they hold dear to themselves and deny access to others. Uh, in, in sociological terms, it's called social closure and opportunity hoarding. So you hoard the opportunity to access a certain aspect of society for a particular group that holds power and use ableist perspectives to exclude others. So you pick on certain identity characteristics and you discriminate against them in a, in a multitude of ways that will prevent them then gaining access to the area that you want to keep for yourself. I mean, in terms of disability, ableism sort of emphasises discrimination in favour of non-disabled people based upon their ability. But you also have a, a concept called disableism, mm -hmm. which emphasises discrimination against disabled people, usually based on an economic imperative. You know, and again, it's going back to normative values. It's, it's about perceived ability of pe uh, disabled people to contribute to economics and you know they're usually perceived as 
slow and, and often taking time off work for sickness, etc. A lot of the research completely disproves this, but these ideas are so strongly ingrained and socialised into society that they still linger, even though the research says something completely different. Ableism in terms of disability, it, it sort of encompasses the impact of the environment and social attitude, as well as having this economic aspect to it. And it's very powerful in that it can actually be internalised and impact the way that people interact with the world around them. So, you know, if, if you work for somebody powerful, you know, somebody maybe you admire and they constantly telling you that you're useless, you know, over a period of time, if they just keep telling you you're useless, you start to believe it and you internalise that belief And then that starts to impact what you believe you can and cannot do in different situations. So it can actually prevent you from trying things that you're probably quite capable of doing. But because you've been told so often that you're not capable internally, you've got this mechanism that holds you back from doing it. In terms of sport, I guess, if you think of it, non-disabled sport embodies these normative values of physical perfection, meaning that disability sport, by comparison, is devalued because it it diverges from this idea of sport as physical perfection, the fastest, the strongest, the highest, etc. That was a very good introduction to what can be quite a complicated issue to understand. So ableism seems to have a strong hold and is quite deep-rooted from what I'm understanding based on your conversation. So what is the difference between disableism and ableism? Is disableism more direct discrimination against disabled people, whereas ableism, is it always intentional? Can ableism be unintentional? I don't know about intention unintentional maybe not the right way of looking at it maybe conscious subconscious would be a better way of looking at it in that you can be socialized into ableist perspectives you know that can make you a, a that can make you racist it can make you sexist it can make you disabledist etc but often people don't even realize they're doing it you know what i mean they've they've sort of it's not like a you know people will make comments and they won't realize the impact of the comment that they're making until you point it out to them and then they go oh i'd never actually thought of it like that before I mean, yes, obviously some of it, you know, particularly we see it with racism, et cetera, is very, very deliberate. Um, of course, yeah. You know, and in, in certain cases, disablism is very, very deliberate. Um, but I would say it's not deliberate or a conscious act for everybody. It's just something that we're sort of drip threat fed as we grow up. It's all around us. We're socialised into believing as we're socialized into this whole concept of normative values as we you know as we grow up in society by all those around us by adults etc and it just becomes part of our subconscious so how do we change that then it sounds like a really difficult issue to deal with 
it really, oh, yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be going on long after I'm dead and buried. But I mean, all you can really do, I guess, is, you know, make people aware of it, increase understanding and education of, of the impact of people's actions and words and put in strong policies and laws, maybe for the sort of the more extreme end of ableism. But those policies and laws need to be acted upon. They need to have teeth. Quite often what we see is what I call just government smoke screens. You know, they'll put a, a, a piece of legislation in place, but then never actually enforce it. So it's like, oh, look, aren't we doing a wonderful job? We've got all these policies. But at the end of the day, they don't actually do anything about it. Okay, yep. So we need firmer action. And I suppose also we need to speak with individuals who are experiencing these ableist practices. They're your fundamental source of information. I mean, the number of policies that get enacted without actually anybody that those policies are designed to help being spoken to is just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. They should be your primary source of information when you're trying to design and develop those policies. As as I say, the problem is those policies are often for show. They're not actually, there's no real intention to change anything. Okay, so we also need the will and the determination to actually make a difference and to change values. But as you said, this has been going on for a very long time and isn't going to change overnight. So it's something we need to consistently work at and try and change, and it's a long-term process. You know, people like yourselves who lecture young people coming through the education system, and the more they're made aware of these issues, I'm not saying you'll change everybody's mind, you know, because some people, you'll never, ever change their attitudes. That's just an unfortunate fact of life. But, you know, if you can change a majority of people's attitudes or at least increase their understanding and awareness of their actions and the words that they use, then hopefully we can move towards a better situation. I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm I'm not a sort of utopian who thinks we're ever going to reach Shangri-La, but we do need to keep pushing that envelope. Yeah, you know, certainly. And um, for those individuals who are listening and they're from organisations that maybe work in this space about sports participation, Mm. how would they kind of do an honest review of their approaches and practices to understand if there are any ableist practices going on? First and foremost, talk to their users. Mm. You know, they're they're, they're the ones that are being impacted by those policies and practices. And, you know, the problem is, though... Often, the people you really want to talk to are the ones who come once, are treated badly and never come back again. Yes, yeah. And you'll never know why, mm. because you never see them again. Um, but, you know, you you do have a core service group. And again, the problems start to arise then. It's like, oh, well, yes, we, we talked to them and they said we need to do this and we need to do this, but we've only got this much money. And therefore, it's impossible for us to enact what the changes that they're requesting. I'm not sure you're there for the right reasons if, if mm. economics is all 
you know, all that matters to you. You know, you find you'll find ways if you really want to change things, you'll find a way. It's a culture change, isn't it? It's not just about having one champion. Obviously, that's important to have a champion within the organisation, but we need everybody to be signed up to this agenda to actually try and provide sustainable, long-lasting change. Everybody needs to be be championing it. Exactly. And yeah. not, not just within their own organisation. You know, when they go out into their social lives, etc., they still need to take those values with them and if appropriate and possible, pick people up on it. If they if they meet somebody socially who is disabled towards somebody, say, well, you know, can we just have a chat about this? Because I don't, I don't particularly like what you just said or what you just did. Yes. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, yeah, if we can root it out wherever we see it, that's obviously going to be really important. Um, yeah. Okay, we've had an interesting discussion about ableism and we also understood a little bit more about how disability has been perceived and understood and how it's changed over time. So some of the criticisms of theory, I suppose, from maybe some practitioners or other theorists, is that it's a little bit abstract. Mm -hmm. And how can we bridge the gap between that kind of abstract, uh, higher level kind of thinking and actually what happens on the ground on a day-to-day basis? So how can we bridge that gap how can we resolve that tension to make sure that the theories that we've talked about can actually translate to meaningful impacts and changes for sports participation well as, as i've already pointed out first and foremost you know your your source for your data needs to be the people that are being impacted by whatever aspect of ableism it is you're looking at but then i think you know understanding the issues and the barriers to participation is the first step to making those policy and legal recommendations particularly if the data is coming from you know the end user and so that will allow you to make these policy and recommendations to remove these barriers and increase awareness and understanding. It's sort of a, it's almost like the old spiral staircase. You know, you slowly move up the spiral mm. staircase, but obviously, if you get something wrong, you can soon end up going back down the spiral yes. staircase. Yeah. So it's 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 often you know two steps forward, three steps back, or maybe two steps forward, one step back. If you're lucky, at least you've made one mm. step advantage uh, in the second scenario. Education and awareness and understanding of the situation is is the key. And I think, you know, that theory based research allows you to provide concrete examples from those end users that can then be used to increase awareness and understanding. With awareness and understanding comes self-awareness, knowledge and hopefully the desire to change. Nicely put. And I think a fine way to end our discussion. So it's been really interesting and educational, learning more about theories of disability, models that have been used to help understand and explain disability, but also going to quite a detailed conversation about ableism and what it is, how it can have an influence in society at large, but also when applying it to sport participation. Always great catching up with you, Ian. Always lovely to chat. So thank you again for being on the show. And I hope listeners have been able to learn a bit more about how we use theory to help understand disability, but also sport participation for disabled people.
So thank you so much, Ian. Really great chatting to you, and I look forward to catching up with you soon. Take care. Dr. Ian Britton there, talking about theories of sport participation and how theory can be used to help us understand disability, but also to understand why and how say people might access sport and physical activity well that's it thank you uh, that's the end of the show i appreciate your time thank you for listening to this podcast hopefully you've learned more about how theory can be used to help us understand grassroots sport participation stay tuned for the next episode of the disability sport info show you've been listening to the disability sport info show academic insights into disability sport